from the lowest dungeon to the highest peak, we bring you a 20-year celebration of The Lord of the Rings. We smote the ruin of Fellowship of the Ring upon the mountainside, but that was not the end. We've been sent back until our task is done. This is My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, and we come back to you now at the turn of the tide. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, now known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is The Dead Marshes, episode 6 on The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Today we follow Gollum through the Dead Marshes, being careful not to follow the lights. But first, our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies have not. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. And today, we're super excited to be joined by AJ Diddy of the Worst of All Possible Worlds podcast, um, which is, by my reckoning, probably one of the most interesting podcasts going right now. Aww. If you're at all interested in uh, like how conservatism, especially American conservatism, impacts like modern pop culture, this is seriously the place for you to go. So, AJ, welcome. Hi. Thank you all so much for having me. Uh I'm super excited to be here and to talk about uh, my main man, uh, Gollum, or I guess main <laughs> men, Gollum and Smeagol. <laughs> um, so I guess like one of the kind of like starter uh, 101 level questions we ask our guests is like, hmm. when and how did you fall prey to Lord of the Rings? Like, what's your <laughs> origin story there? Well, I was led into this cave by this little weirdo in a loincloth, <laughs> and there was a giant <laughs> spider web, and I t- everything was kind of blurry after that. No, when I was a kid, my dad would read The Hobbit to me. Uh, That was like one Mm. of the first books that I remember him reading out loud. And it was one of the first books that I remember reading by myself. It was, you know, that that green leather bound number, like the collector's edition that they had of The Hobbit. Um, I had one of those. And Mm. um, I remember very distinctly, even from a very young age, sort of like globbing on to Gollum. Uh, My dad used to do this voice of him for me, which kind of sounded like, my precious like this very sort of like guttural snake thing that was very like Voldemort, I guess more Voldemort-esque than like we eventually got with Gollum. This is before the movies. So, you know, I can't blame him for not being able to do a a good impression of him. But uh, I eventually got to the point where I became really, really obsessed with this character to the point where when Two Towers came out, uh, I walked out of the theater uh, with my friend and I turned to him and I said, I think I can do that voice. And he looked at me and said, what are you talking about? We just saw the film. I'm like, no, 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 but, but just listen to this. Listen, how does this sound? And I said, they're super that they're And he, he looked at me and he said, I mean, yeah, that's, that's the, vo- I'm, that's the voice. And he's like, you have to do, you have to do that for everyone. And it made me the most popular kid, I think in seventh grade. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Green Elementary. Um, and I kind of 
used it as a party trick ever since. Um, I have to say that my my focus on Lord of the Rings is very, very uh, specifically on Gollum. I feel like I w- when we start getting into the more like the proper nouns of the Silmarillion and the ba- what battle went here and like you know uh, the etymology of all the words and all that stuff, I, I I my brain sort of short circuits and collapses in on itself like a dying star. But Gollum is like where my focus is, <laughs> and um, I did the impression and I posted it on YouTube uh, in the early, early days of YouTube. And uh, it got a pretty good response. Uh, it's it's uh, it's the second highest rated Gollum and Smeagol impersonation on YouTube, <laughs> which is which is kind of like being the prince of nowhere <laughs> is the best way to describe it. Uh, but uh, it has actually served me in two very... Uh, other interesting ways, and I hope you you, you both can indulge me on this, but uh, it's the reason I got into college. Um, I did a summer program at uh, through NYU, and they had like a talent show at the end of the year, and I did my Gollum and Smeagol impression as a full monologue, as a fully acted monologue. Oh my god! <laughs> uh, I got down, you know, uh, on my on my on my on all fours, and I was going back and forth, and uh, you know. It was one of those things, it was like the most surreal acting experience of my life because I truly felt like outside of myself. Like it it honestly, when I would switch between them, I would actually just kind of see myself as the other version, as my scene partner, like in right in front of me. It's one of those weird ethereal acting things that I always mm. usually make fun of, but in this case it <laughs> was really happened and was really cool. Uh, <laughs> and I finished at the end and I kind of rolled up and uh, I hadn't really noticed the audience up until that point, but I, I took them in and they were all like literally leaning forward on the edge of their seats. And I said, uh, thank you. And a wall of sound just hit me. Like they, oh the audience like leapt to their feet in a way that I've actually never been able to achieve since. <laughs> so, uh, and this is sort of like at the height of, you know, Lord of the Rings popularity. I think this was, uh, you know, Return of the King had already won all of its Oscars and it had like permanently like set itself in the zeitgeist, you know, of American pop culture. So everyone was very primed and ready for this. Um, but as I walked out, uh, my TA at the time uh, uh, came came over to me and uh, with his just like piercing blue eyes looked at me and said, you are going to go to this school. And I oh said... God how how do you know? And he's like, I just know. And that man's name is Ismael Cruz Cordova, who no. is going to be playing Aaron Deere. Oh my God, are you for real? In the Rings of Power, yes. Holy shit. That is insane. Yeah. We, <laughs> we, uh, we, we lost, we, we, we lost uh, touch with each other, but we had seen each other kind of around New York uh, theater scene for a while after that. And uh, it, you know, always a warm smile, always a big hug for Ismail. He's one of the nicest guys you could ever hope oh to my meet. God. Um, and, uh, so that was, that's, that's like my one big, uh, Gollum story. And the other one, uh, is it's how I met my fiance. <laughs> uh, I was at a, uh, we were doing a six hour Bible play. Uh, at a the- yeah, at, at a theater downtown. <laughs> it, the story behind that is way too long to get into, but basically, <laughs> me and my partner joined a cult briefly for about four months, and uh, and we were at a party uh, in Midtown Manhattan, 
in this enormous loft space, and the director of the project really liked to hold, liked to hold like these huge, huge parties that just turned into like bacchanals, basically. You know, very young theater people being awkward around each other until you know it all just started getting like very intense. And uh, I was very nervous at this party, but I had always knew that my great icebreaker was to do this impression. So uh, I saw this very attractive person, my fiance, sitting. Uh, Uh, across the room on a little riser. And uh, my friend told me, hey, you know, uh, that person really loves Lord of the Rings and especially Gollum, and you can do that impression. You should go do it for them. And I said, I mean, you know, I I had had, you know, a couple of uh, Miller High Lifes at that point, the champagne (laughs) of beers. And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. So uh, I went over to them and I said, hey, I heard you like Gollum. And they went, yeah, yeah, I guess. (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, "Do you, I, I could do a perfect impression. You want your impression? They said, okay, yeah, sure. I said, well, I could do it in front of you so you can like watch me do it. Or if you want, I could go behind you and do one in each ear so you can close your eyes and sort of imagine and picture Gollum in front of you. And they said, and, and they said yeah, I'd kind of like you to do it behind me if that's okay. And I said, yeah, okay, sure. Uh, so I did it behind them. Um, it's about a three-minute monologue, uh, three to four-minute monologue going back and forth. And, you know, there's sort of, there's a lot of gasps because my voice sits naturally low. So when Gollum comes out of me, it is it is a little bit shocking. But after the initial part of that, you know, we went through the whole monologue. And I finished, and I came uh, back around uh, the front to be like, hey, how'd you enjoy it? And their face was covered in tears. Uh, <laughs> oh, my they, God. Because what I did not know was they were higher than they'd ever been in their life. <laughs> and they would later recount to me that they actually thought that Gollum was behind them. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And like, now we're going to get married. Gollum ASMR. <laughs> yes. Uh, oh, so uh, that's that's been mostly my history uh, with Gollum and Smeagol, uh, and yeah, thank you all for for indulging me and having me on to talk about it because I have I have no other outlet to tell those two very particular stories. <laughs> I had like I was like all prepped and ready with like all of these like super. <laughs> intellectual questions like all right like as an actor and as like a playwright like da, 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 da. but now my brain is just like holy fuck Gollum ASMR this is the <laughs> oh my god that's absolutely <laughs> incredible so so that would have been like right at the like kind of peak of post uh Lord of the Rings kind of interest right like that yes. was like kind of mid-2000s right yeah the, thereabouts um I believe by that point actually we had hit the uh when I was in high school, that was mid two thousand. So that was uh, when I did the summer camp. It was like two thousand seven ish. When I did the impression uh, for my fiance, that was a little bit later. That was uh, twenty fifteen. Uh, so it was like the the people who were into Lord of the Rings at the time had now become like twenty somethings uh, right. or thereabouts. <laughs> but I knew I knew there was sort of a ticking clock on the impression because I did it for a talent show. Uh, a little bit later, and everyone was like, I don't know who that squeaky man is. Uh, mm. and, and I was like, okay, so the, it's it's expired now. And maybe coming back around with the 20th anniversary and all that, but um, yeah, no, it's, uh, it is it is a party trick uh, that I happen to love to pieces, but it is ultimately a party trick, so... It's like an incredible one. Um, so it's kind of interesting because I, w- I was going through um, 
and I should actually now shout this out for our, our listeners at home. Um, but there's this brilliant website called uh, newplayexchange.org. Um, and if you pay like, it's like some kind of peanut sum, like like 10 bucks a year, I think. Yeah, I think yeah. it's about that. It's incredible. Um, you get access to thousands of of plays by by like uh like new writers. Um, and so I was going through like d- doing a little like stocking of your stuff. Oh wow! Um, and well, having the the time of my life and skiving off work there. And um, but I was looking at uh reading through one of your your plays. Um, and I'm gonna fuck it up the pronunciation because I'm not Norwegian. But the the Boig, I think. Yeah. Uh, pronunciation. Yeah, you can yeah. say the Boig. Uh, I mean, in 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 Norwegian, I think it's the Buga. Uh, oh, which wow. which sounds too much like booger to me. So uh, yeah, I like there. to say I like to say boig. And the characters in it in American productions pronounce it boig uh, because they're speaking Norwegian that we can just understand. So they use right. their natural accent. Yeah. So so that that like actually gets immediately off the bat to to something I wanted to to ask you about because you've got right at the start um uh, like you know I know all all plays tend to have like authors notes but I feel like there's a lot of kind of character in them um but in oh, your yeah. your character notes you've got um you you kind of address the issue of the fact that like because the play is like kind of a double adaptation like an a direct adaptation of a book by uh, Odd Nansen and then yes. an indirect adaptation of Pierre Gen. And Ibsen's Pierre Gint. Very and, loose adaptation of Pierre Gint. <laughs> I can't stress that enough. <laughs> and, but you've got like this great sort of character note where you're talking about how like, you know, these are like real characters that or real people rather that that um, you've adapted. And, and like when people are performing it, um, they shouldn't necessarily feel kind of overly beholden to to real life characters you, you've mm. got i think the line is like embodying the spirit of these men is much more important than historical accuracy yes. um, and this is kind of like it, it kind of is something that we deal with a lot on this podcast like this question of kind of adaptation and um yeah. and like faithfulness i guess lore accuracy um, yeah. but it was interesting reading like this kind of du- double adaptation and i wanted to hear kind of some more of your thoughts like either with like reference to lord of the rings or just like your own work generally like how because you also did a, a an adaptation of the Inferno, a uh, serialized adaptation of that. Like, how do I you sure kind of handle that kind of adaptation kind of project? You know what I mean? Oh, sure, absolutely. Um, well, I think it's it's the stuff that speaks to you because uh, a good friend of mine, uh, T. Adamson, who was another just outrageously talented playwright. Uh, he, he, I, I don't remember. We, I think we were in a playwriting group uh, at one point and he said, uh, your adaptation will never be as good as the original. Uh, and that struck me because, or like as influential as the original. And that struck me because I was like, huh, I guess that like, no matter, even Ulysses, which, you know, is I, I hold as like one of the greatest adaptations of all time. Is it better than the Odyssey? You know, I think that's really up for debate. Certainly not as, I, I don't think, as influential as as the Odyssey. Uh, but I mean, again, that's that's arguable. So for me, when you're adapting something, it's always about what speaks to you personally, because that's what's going to make the thing sing. Uh, you know, my Inferno adaptation is a... Uh, a twelve-year-old girl making her way through the nine circles of hell to get her dead brother back. So uh, that that is like the furthest thing possible from Dante going through hell and you know basically teabagging his political enemies <laughs> as as he goes. Um, and uh, and you know that one's also very very silly until it's very very not. Um, but you can't you can't really escape writing like yourself, so you might as well embrace it. Like, and especially for like the Pierre Gint adaptation, I don't particularly care for Pierre Gint as a play. Uh, I think it's 
overly long. Act four is one of the greatest messes, I think, in dramatic history. But it also wasn't <laughs> ever supposed to be performed. You know, it was a dramatic poem. So it was about picking and choosing the things that jumped out at me. And one of the things, uh, uh, one of those things was the Boig and how it is a symbol for me of depression and mm. the all-encompassing feeling that it can be and how, you know, when Pierre Gint is in... Uh, the cave fighting the Boig, like he tries to like swing his fists at it and he can't. And the Boig is like, I mean, you can do that if you want, but you know, I'm just still going to be here. And I'm like, mm-hmm. if that's not the most depression thing on the planet, you know, I, yeah, I don't know yeah. what is. <laughs> and, you know, Ibsen's whole solution for it was to like, oh, the way you solve, you square that circle of destroying depression is through God. It's like the bells of the church outside ring and it completely obliterates the Boig, uh, along with like the singing of birds, right? It's like, you know, mm. daylight will destroy the darkness. And for me, I was like, oh, so, okay, so what's the equivalent of like destroying depression? And it is finding hope and salvation in other people who are mm. able to help you, but also f- having the strength to accept other people's help, um, mm. which is a thing in like the throes of depression that, you know, is, is so, so difficult. And um, a thing that I think very interestingly ties into Gollum in The Dead Marshes, too, <laughs> because there's just that one moment where like uh, in the movie version, because, you know, and obviously in the books, Sam does not interact with Gollum. When they have their, uh, when when they have, you know, he has his like internal fight with himself whether to take the Mm. ring or not. Uh, But Frodo offers an olive branch and Gollum almost takes it and then Mm. decides, no. Uh, Because (laughs) Sam has to butt his his little head in and say, hey, you know, there's a demon coming for us, Sam. Uh, no, brilliant. So, so I'm really excited to to hear you say to pick out that one, especially because I do have when when we get to it a little later, I do have a, a couple more questions for you about that with reference to another play of yours. Um, but oh, cool. now that you know, I'm kind of artlessly going to kick open the door here on like your your takes on Lord of the Rings, and also the question that I ask everybody, which is like, what are your controversial <laughs> takes on the Lord of the Rings? Oh, great. Um, my first one is. Uh, is pretty quick, which is uh, the hobbits are Italian. Um, uh, they are my people. Uh, hairy Fair. feet uh, never stop eating. Uh, unwieldy family trees. Uh, we don't come of age until we're in our 30s. Uh, Bilbo's paternal grandfather is named Mungo. And are you telling me that Mungo doesn't walk into a room and people are like, hey, Mungo? Like, come on. My people. Also, Frodo's Western name, I didn't know this until yesterday. His Western name is Mara Labingi? <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Come on, that's Italiano. <laughs> that's Gabagool. I, I uh, so I think that's probably my hottest take. Uh, although maybe this one might be too. Uh, more Tom Bombadil. Ooh. I want I want him to be tied in a little bit better. I think when you introduce a figure that is not God, because Tolkien has said very specifically, not. God, but give him all the powers of an anti-Sauron, and then you just kind of leave him in the woods. I don't know. I feel like it's a missed opportunity. I want to see. I want to see Tom Bombadil like walk over to the eye and just like poke it, just like just poke him right in the flames. See what happens. 
No, Brian. And so th- this, I think, pretty sure this episode is actually going to air right after we do our uh, like our book only <laughs> scenes where we do handle Tom Bobadil. And I think I like mostly make a wet farting noise the whole way through it because <laughs> uh, Tom. Um, no, that I think actually might be the spiciest take. And I, I was wondering for a minute there if you were going to say uh, more Tom in the movies. So I'm, I'm like absolutely tickled to hear more Tom in the books. That is a, a killer take. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't, cause I don't know if he fits in the movies, you know, uh, maybe my other hottest take is that I think, uh, I kind of agree with Peter Jackson that the theatrical releases are sort of the ideal adaptation yes, of yes. this material. Uh, because I think the extended versions really bog down the pace. And I mean, bog. Dead marches. <laughs> but but like yeah, I, I, I don't know. I feel like um I I feel like adding him would ruin the pace of the movies. Um and also I, I mean, do y'all have like an idea of who you would cast as Tom Bombadil in the movies if there was going to be a Tom Bombadil? Oh man, Menu, I think you had a good answer for that. And I'm I can't oh, remember I the life of me. Really cannot. Uh, remember who I said and we recorded this like two weeks ago. This is ridiculous. This is like fucking uh, what is time anymore? What is time? You know what? Ismael. Let's get Ismael in there. And oh, he'll, I, uh, I had a what's it called? Oh, yeah. Laura Dern as Goldberry. Oh, oh amazing. So then maybe you could even do like uh, Sam Neill in his current gray bearded state uh, as Tom Bombadil. It's just oh, that fucking interview where yeah. they, neither of them knew their own ages. Like, yep, do that. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, who didn't know their own ages goldberry and tom bombadil no sam neil and laura dern had this like thing recently where they're like yeah neither of us realized that we weren't the same age like look in a mirror (laughs) sam neil looks good but not that good uh i mean if that happens we have to have jeff goldblum at least like play like a little like like just pop into frame at one point and then slowly (laughs) slowly retreat Uh, the old man willow yeah yeah <laughs> give, give it like a give it like a Pocahontas look you know but it's just Jeff Goldblum's face in the oh my uh, god <laughs> in the wood the god, um, the, the has anyone of... has anyone ever asked you or have you on your own volition like done something really unhinged in the Gollum voice like recite capital or something like that oh um, I mean or... uh Honestly, the demand for it recently has been uh, very little because it scares my fiance. Uh, <laughs> mostly, probably because of flashbacks to when we she met. had a bad trip. Yeah, I had a bad trip. Uh, no, but I am always, I am always open and always willing to do uh, read whatever anybody wants uh, <laughs> in the voice. If y'all need me to do read some quotes at some point for future episodes or anything, uh, just reach out to me. I'll do it. I love doing it. It's one of my favorite things to do. Um, we need a bumper for when Emily uh, refers to Dante. So maybe you can re- say something about Emily's about to go Dante on us in a Gollum voice or something like Fucking that. Fucking Dante moment, Italian moment. Into <laughs> <laughs> the inferno we go. Oh my or... God. It's <laughs> <laughs> uncanny. It truly is uncanny. Yeah. Oh uh, God. It's, it's, uh, it's it's weird because Andy Circus and I actually our voices don't necessarily even sit in the same way. I don't. It, it's it's the weirdest trick I can do because you know I have to usually work so hard on doing impressions. Um, fun fact: if you get a golem, you also uh, have an Alan Rickman. Um, what? Because Alan Rickman is just golem without the grate on it. So <laughs> so to start out as golem, right, and then turn to page three hundred and ninety four. 
Oh my god. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I seriously feel like I've tripped through to a different dimension. Like I like just worked the full day of work and I'm like, <laughs> did I actually have like did I wake up this morning at all? <laughs> You're still at work, Emily. You never <laughs> left. <laughs> <laughs> Holy yeah. fuck. Jesus Christ. I, I can't make my voice sound like anything but literally what you're hearing right now. So I am just <laughs> utterly in awe of this. Uh, also, you can do an Elmo. Uh, it's just Gollum higher pitched. Uh, fucking hell. Yeah. <laughs> fucking hell. <laughs> um, <laughs> God, no. Um, this is so fun for me. I never get to do this. <laughs> Yeah, I think we'll just have to have you deliver, like, honestly, every remaining point uh, in this episode. Just Gollum, Elmo, Alan Rickman, uh, Axis of Evil it up. (laughs) (laughs) The Axis of Evil. (laughs) Well, again, I can't go an episode without a fucking war criminal reference there, so (laughs) get it out of the way. (laughs) Elmo sponsors Stunt TV! Holy shit. Insane. Absolute madness. Um, so I guess before we like jump into the the meat, the stew of this episode, the bog stew of this episode, mm. um, do you have any like final general thoughts on on The Lord of the Rings, uh, either as the books, because you, you obviously grew up with them, or yeah. the films? Do you have anything, any grudges to settle? Oh, grudges. Wow. Uh, not really. I think the films are probably the greatest cinematic blockbuster series ever made i and i they just haven't they just haven't been topped really in terms of scope in terms of like economy of storytelling i'm always blown away by how quickly those movies fly for how long they are like Mm. you don't you don't finish fellowship and you're like yeah i'm good like you're like well i have to watch two towers now and i have to watch (laughs) return of the king and you know even though return of the king does have you know uh a couple endings i think it fully earns them and Mm. I, I remember I, I saw Return of the King with my dad. That was like the final thing as a nice little, you know, cap. He he read me the original stories when I was a kid and then we both got to see it together. And oh. and I, I, I had tears like streaming down my face at the end and I turned to my dad and I said, well, what'd you think? And he was like, it's really long. And then he walked out just like unfazed. And I found out that later he, uh, later that night he, he, he cried a great deal, but he just, uh, it didn't hit him until I guess a lot later. Um, But I, you know, this series does mean a lot to me and I don't know. And again, Gollum is my way in. I think it might be because I am also a balding, a balding gangly uh, little weirdo (laughs) who lives for drama. But I, I truly think that Gollum is probably one of the greatest tragic figures in the Western canon. Mm. Mm. Uh, and we've been doing a lot of recapping of Hamlet on our podcast yeah. recently, so I think that's saying something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, this is uh, good. I'm, I'm glad you bring this up because I think this is going to be a fun little conversation uh, in however many minutes. I'm not going to estimate. Um, for the, the sort of question of Frodo or Gollum as the kind of bigger tragedy of, well, not tragedy, but bigger tragic figure. Uh, yeah, brilliant. Um, Absolutely. Awesome. All right. I think, uh, I think time to dive into the fucking marshes.
I don't know what it says about me, but while re-watching the scene in prep for this episode, the only thing I could focus on in the opening shot is Sam's fucked up feet. <laughs> There's this beautiful scenery in the background, dark and spooky Mordor with Mount Doom filming a Pepsid commercial in the background, oh contrasted God. against the eerily light and craggy Emin Wheel. And in between, half in shadow, half in light, an endless flat expanse. It's beautiful cinematic design, beautiful matte painting, and yet, like the sick fuck I am, all my brain can focus on is how well those weirdo hobbit feet shoes are holding up. With a quick cut, the hobbit foot goes straight into a bowl of porridge, and I think I only noticed this because I paused horribly on it to take notes, but (laughs) Jesus Christ, that puddle is really foul. (laughs) It's only then, foot covered in oats, that Sam notices that Gollum has led them into a bog. And I can't fault him here, I guess, because I also have dog shit distance vision. <laughs> yes, yes. Come, Master. We will take you on safe paths through the mist. It does sort of make you wish this movie operated, though, like Stephen King's The Mist. But Gollum's found a way through the marshes, one that even the orcs don't use, presumably because they've got an ounce of self-respect, unlike our terrible trio here. We are famished, yes, famished, This is really Gollum's first moment to shine. He whines and bitches with such emotion, and then, Shrek style, slurps a worm. <laughs> Writing this out is such a fucking deranging thing, because it's like, there's no way this should be good. There's no way this should be emotionally affecting, and yet it is. Mm-hmm. Anyways, we're back to Sam Furious, Frodo Benevolent aristocrating it up, and Gollum choking on Lembus. Gollum, cannily, starts playing up the similarities between himself and Frodo, and you can absolutely see the moment that Frodo starts to realize they're not so different, the two of them, though his gut reaction is, of course, pure disgust. They carry on, some more beautiful set design here with the flaming gas vents, and of course, the bodies in the water. You can see the long hair and the vaguest of implications that, in life, they might have once been beautiful. Careful now, hobbits go down to join the dead ones and light little candles of their own. Frodo obviously does not give a shit and goes literally straight for the nearest body of water he sees. And I want to highlight here the sickest shit armor the corpse is wearing, mirrored in the armor we see Elrond wearing in the prologue of Fellowship and in The Hobbit, in the scene at Dol Guldur that some internet terrorist once described as Hugo Weaving, quote, putting his whole weave ussy into it. <laughs> Enjoy that imagery yes. there. Yes. Let it, mar- <laughs> Let it marinate. I love literacy. Anyways, uh, Frodo puts his whole... Frodussy into it. Oh, God. (laughs) By going face down into the water. Right before he falls, there's a brilliant drop in the score when the dead elf opens his eyes. Proper THX title card shit. And then Frodo's down for the count and a near mirror of Sam's momentary drowning in Nanhithoil. He's saved, but this time by Gollum, not Sam. Uh Uh-oh, tension. (laughs) They sleep, or Sam does, while Mount Doom charms away in the background. Frodo behaves like a little freak with his ring, and Andy Serkis gives one of my favorite performances in this series. But this calm, profound moment of interpersonal recognition cannot linger because... Demental! Demental! (laughs) (laughs) Forgive me, my sense of humor solidified in the mid-2000s. 
So a wraith shrieks in the distance. Frodo's down for the count again. And the Nazgul make their triumphant re-entry into the series, this time with fell beasts. I like to imagine there's a very different version of this story told by the Nazgul, which hews a lot closer to the Italian job. <laughs> Don't worry, though. With the big spooky biker gang showing up again, we're close to the end, within spitting distance of the Black Gate. I'm sure it can only get easier from here. All right, so coming out of the M and Meal, and I've been doing just fine, our halfling trio find themselves in the aptly named Dead Marshes. To borrow uh, the description from J.R.R. Tolkien, dreary and wearisome, cold, clammy winter still held sway in this forsaken country. The only green was the scum of livid weed on the dark, greasy surfaces of the sullen waters. Dead grasses and rotting reeds loomed up in the mist like ragged shadows of long-forgotten summers. And this uh, location was actually filmed in Kepler Meyer in Te Anu, which is in the Southland region of New Zealand. Although some of the closer shots of our characters are, were filmed on Weta Digital's wet set, uh, which they used for a couple locations in these films. Uh, not sure where I'm going to throw this tangent in here, but of all the locations in Middle Earth, this one is the one that most reminds me out of something from Zelda or a location in Hyrule. Mm. I think I've been having Link to the Past on my mind lately. <laughs> There's a place called Misery Mire in the southwest corner of the map, and not far from it is the Swamp Palace. And even like the <laughs> Don't Follow the Lights uh, thing that comes up in this re uh, series of scenes, that feels like a Zelda puzzle. Like uh, Usually you do have to follow the lights in video games, but I, you right. know. I have one brain cell and it thinks about Zelda all the time. Okay. <laughs> well, it's amazing to me because actually the first thing that jumped to my head was uh, Miyazaki and all of his swamps. Like it's, this feels like, I mean, maybe it's because Elden Ring poisoned my brain beyond belief. But uh, like I'm, I'm looking at this scene going, you got to eat a, a purple moss clump or you are not going to make it through, guys. This is, uh, there's going to be something in that water that pulls you down under. Yeah, there's probably a scarlet rot swamp somewhere around there as well. It's just bad news, bad news. <laughs> yeah, it's Gollum puts his his, uh, his ear to the earth and says, Rizmalania, and then they're all just like decimated. <laughs> <laughs> the marshes are bordered on the northwest by the Emin Muil and to the east by the plains of Daggerlad, which was the site of a battle during the Last Alliance. Moranon, the Black Gate, lies to its southeast. And the dead marshes also have a sister swamp, which, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, is called the Wet Wang. <laughs> okay. So this is actually, oh, fucking hell. Uh, so I, back when I was first getting into Lord of the Rings uh, last year, um, I was like definitely getting into it for contrarian reasons, but also because I looked at the map, the hand-drawn map uh, mm -hmm. that comes in the books. And there it, it says under Nindalf, which is the the uh, the Sindarin name for it, it says, Prince <laughs> Wet Wang. <laughs> and <laughs> no it just way. snapped something. Literally. It's literally, I like, okay, I, I should have I should have actually spent some time to look up the proper etymology of it, but it is like Wang is an old English term for a marsh, <laughs> like or like a like a plane. Um, and Tolkien, being the fucking bubble boy, moral bubble boy that he was, just obviously hadn't put two and two together there, and was like, "Fine, I will scribble Wet Wang all over my map." 
Um, and yeah, and 70, 80 years on, it's still there. Wet Wang immortalized. Well, I mean, I feel like that Wet Wang would be really good for the Weevussy we referred to earlier, <laughs> or the Frodussy. Oh, it's um, awful. Yeah. <laughs> I, I genuinely have like I was I was literally like going to do a whole bunch of research on like the the because uh, there is kind of a whole story so like the actually quite interesting Karen Wynn Fonstad yeah I got her name right there uh, has a like an atlas of Middle Earth and that that's really good uh, and like a great reference and she does a lot of like insane science and magic or whatever to figure out like the topography of the various areas and like what realistically the climate would have been and and she does have actually a brief section on the kind of dead marshes and everything south of the dead marshes straight through to like the Endwash and the Maring Stream and stuff and, and that's a brilliant resource and so worth consulting and I my brain saw wet wag and was like, I won't be able to do this research. So uh, I have to report back. I have nothing to add to this right now. Uh, should we rewrite the theme song to the West Wing to be called the wet wang? <laughs> you might actually get me to watch it then. <laughs> it's just a, it's a show about swamps. It's about, it's about all the, all the ghosts in the swamps doing busy work. That oh, is, yeah, pretty much it Drain. after too many summers in D.C. <laughs> Drain the swamp or something like that. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> As we've gone through history, the obvious point about the dead marshes should be pretty obvious. The swamplands existed for a long time, but a bunch of gentrifiers would come along and erect fancy new corpses to put in the water. That's probably a terrible way to explain it, so I'm going to hand this one off to Emily. <laughs> Um, actually, my insane uh, moral uh, estimation of all the various races in uh, the Legendarium, I would actually say it's reverse gentrification because the first bodies down are the elves of Lothlorien who get wiped out during the Battle of the Last Alliance. Um, and when they're buried there, like, and they are properly buried there, it's not like marshes at all. The the marshes are kind of north and east of them. And uh, in kind of a brilliant little bit of like world building there, uh, the Tolkien writes that like the, the, the marshes expand out, um, over time, uh, their like grip on the environment becomes that much greater. Um, and the planes flood and the bodies are resurfaced. But then, um, in the third age, when Gondor is in a pissing contest with the Easterlings and these are, these are the Ben-Hur ones with the chariots, the, the Wayne riders, um, oh, yeah, they, yeah. Yeah, exciting, exciting, thrilling stuff. Uh, they get like knocked out. The the Easterlings kind of get trapped because they like again with fucking characters in Lord of the Rings and riding horses into places they shouldn't be, and um, mm. they get trapped in there with their horses and their chariots, and obviously all drown. <laughs> oh God, it's a sure. it's the never ending story. It's <laughs> I, I was actually surprised that when Frodo fell in, he didn't see um, Artax. Is that oh, is that Atreus the... horse's name? Is it yeah. Artax? Just like yep. chilling down there, be like, "Hey, my uh, <laughs> my rider kind of abandoned me. Can you get me out of the swamp?" And then uh, pulled out by Gollum. <laughs> um, I actually like uh, after like finally learning months ago that um, it is not just the elves that are in there. I kind of had this like moment of silence based off of like the like insanely racist like uh, like coal black eyeliner Easterlings that are in these films. I was like, thank fucking god they did not put these guys in there because I'm not yeah. fully ready for like what what that could have been. <laughs> a nightmare, a real nightmare. Yeah. yeah. So the land swallows up and resurfaces the dead, but as Gallimo let us know, the bodies aren't really there. They're only vision, which the film plays with pretty effectively. 
They look like real bodies just below the waterline from our non-submerged point of view. But when Frodo dunks in, he sees apparitions as opposed to a zombie coming for him. Uh, Also a note about uh, the history of the Dead Marshes is this is where Aragorn captured Gollum, uh, you know, ahead of Frodo setting out on his expedition from the Shire. Which is very funny to me, I think, actually, because now that you think about it, Gollum's like, yeah, no one's ever caught me in here. Like, we'll be (laughs) safe here. And it's like, dude, you were literally just caught here. (laughs) It's his good selective amnesia. No one's been caught there twice. Yeah, that's true. That is technically true. (laughs) Uh, So we'll talk about the lights now. And in the films, it's a series of little fires that seem to cut a path through the marshes. Gollum tells Sam and Frodo not to follow them, lest they end up with the dead ones. The books maybe make this slightly less literal. Um, Gollum refers to it as the candle of corpses, and it seems to be something ethereal or not quite physically there. And though I haven't read The Hobbit book in about 15 years, for some reason this vaguely reminds me of the scenes in Mirkwood, where Bilbo and company are getting lost, but they're seeing visions of various like elvish fires or like camps um and they try to follow them but just get uh end up getting further lost within the woods oh yeah and because of all this you know bullshit the orcs just avoid the marshes entirely uh they take the long way around which is also you know probably a worthwhile note for the military commanders of middle earth um (laughs) this is a spot that's unguarded but also very treacherous to get through yeah um so as they're kind of being uh like kind of bitchy and annoying uh, about the lights uh, or just after uh, they're sitting, having their lovely little uh, snack. Actually, it's quite funny because they've got the, they've got that great set design with the, um, w- what looks like practical uh, fire, gas fire. Like they're literally just venting. Ah, sorry. Okay. The, the Adderall is truly wearing off here. Um, <laughs> the one thing I was going to mention is we've got this fucking horrific chemical plant um, in, in Fife, uh, south of where I live. Uh, it, and it's called Moss Morin. And um, every so often it vents the natural gas that they don't use in chemical production. But obviously because this is just the hell world and um, when they vent it, it burns. Um, so it's like oh, great God. light in the sky. Like when I used to live in Edinburgh, uh, which was like uh four miles, I think, across the Firth of Forth from Moss Morin, it would light up the sky properly at night, like full-on Eye of Sauron shit. Whoa! Um, and it looks exactly like the fires you see here. So, like, Fife, uh, for anybody who's interested in uh, internal Scottish politics, uh, Fife is now the dead marshes. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, uh, hell country. Um, but, so so Sam and, and, and the gang, uh, whoever that other fucker is in Gollum, uh, sit down uh, <laughs> and they start like eating. Um, and there's this bit where like Gollum's bitching about being hungry and there are no birds. Um, and it's lovely, all great lines stolen from the book. So very good and poetic. Um, mm. <laughs> and Gollum is like, I'm not going to eat the Hobbit food. Um, and Sam looks at him and is like, then starve. And he does it in the exact cadence with which I read the Obama then perish meme and I've never been able to shake it. And I cannot take what is like quite a serious character moment seriously, because it's just red Obama then perish. Well, they see that pretty well too, because when Frodo goes under the water into the marsh, uh, if you slow down the audio, you can actually hear the ghostly apparitions say, thanks Obama. (laughs) Yeah, this is the retreat from uh, what was it, fucking Mosul or whatever. I used to know things about the military, and I don't know shit. We'll call it Mosul. <laughs> the marvelous Mrs. Mosul. 
Speaking of the military, uh, supposedly some of the inspiration for the Dead Marshes comes from the Battle of Somme from World War I, which I put in the notes and did not research any oh, further. Sorry. So, I, yeah, so it's yeah, true. It's 100% true. <laughs> yeah, the, the Somme was like a truly fucked up, egregious battle. Uh, and, you know, not to say that any of the battles in like World War One were like good or justifiable, but the Somme was like especially brutal um, and was kind of definitely like the turning point. And um, well, I don't know about other, do other Europeans have like inner monologues? I don't know. The British psyche got truly fucked up by it uh, and, and kind of never fully like repaired itself. Um, hmm. Tolkien was not there and was not involved Um generally but but especially in the psalm uh but it's not unlikely that the sort of kind of marshy shithole that is france uh and northwestern europe like definitely inspired this and the other point of reference is grendel's wilderness which uh maybe yep <laughs> um, yep <laughs> oh there's a real okay i i was like specifically telling myself not to put anything down for this because it was like if you get into it it'll you'll never stop but no self-restraint and um, there's that fucking awful uh um like polar express adaptation of beowulf um and like with ray winstone cast, yes that's it mm-hmm. yep that's mm-hmm. it um they had such an opportunity to do a great like take on Grendel's marshy like Fenland march Fen march like wilderness, and they didn't in the end because they did that dumbass cave where it's like Angelina Jolie with her tits out. Not an adaptation choice I can complain about, but like no <laughs> like cool scenic design, nothing like that. And I'm to this day, and I've only I only watched the movie like three weeks ago, but to this day, I'm still better about it. And what a, what a blown opportunity! Look, Emily, the the PS2 could only render so much. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like you can't you can't expect the lush forests of Elden Ring to be played with Angelina. Well, they're putting all that horsepower behind Angelina Jolie's tits. Like they have to be <laughs> rendered in real time. Oh yeah, absolutely. The the dripping gold was yeah flawless fluid <laughs> dynamics there. <laughs> Just a cube hits the ground. (laughs) (laughs) We'll uh, come back to Frodo's scuba certification training later, but I wanted to focus (laughs) on his coming to God, uh, I mean Gollum moment here. Frodo, having fallen into the ecto-cooler-looking waters, is pulled out by Gollum. Or is it Schmeagol? This act shocks Frodo. Mm. When he's out, he's more focused on Gollum saving his life than his near-death experience or how wet he must be. And not just wet, wet, but like undead, wet, wet. Mm -hmm. And as I've been doing all through this podcast, I like to kind of communicate the things as I was interpreting them, not like as someone who could have just read the books and found the answers. Um, But one thing I thought about was, did Gollum save Frodo because of his vow to serve the ring bearer or because he feared the ring would be lost if he didn't? Or could it just be an instinctual reaction? Like, you know, how I put my hand in front of a passenger in a car when I'm driving if I'm coming to an abrupt stop. I bring up the last one for this reason. Saving Frodo for, you know, whatever reason is good, obviously. Sorry to the Frodo haters out there. (laughs) But it's a moment that turns Frodo's perception of Gollum almost 180 degrees. If Frodo thought Gollum saved him for just the ring, not sure that would be a trust-earning moment. If he Hmm. did it because because of his vow to Frodo himself, that's better. Um, He's showing some loyalty and that he's true to his word. He can at least be trusted in the short term. But rather, if he did it instinctually or without thinking, that speaks to perhaps something truly morally good down underneath the stinker persona. 
something yet untouched or uncorrupted by the ring, but buried so deep down that Gollum doesn't even know it's there. Hmm. Um, yeah, so I guess like right here, um, AJ, I really want to ask like what, what, like, yeah. I guess what is your, what is your take? Here? Um, I think it has something to do with the instinctual nature of like, I have to save, like it, like you said, it's, it's the stop sign thing of like, you know, trying to get someone from not being hit by a car, but it reveals something a lot deeper, which is that Gollum isn't the only personality in there. There is some light, there is some hope left in him. Uh, and I think that's sort of the first time that Frodo's like, oh, like maybe I could save that. Maybe I could save this little freak. Like maybe there is a way to bring him back to Smeagol, which seems to be his modus operandi for most of the rest of their time together. Uh, is is trying to be like there is good in him because there has to be good in Gollum because that means that there will still be good in me at the end of this journey. Mm. Um, I think the most interesting thing about Frodo as a character is that his conflict is almost entirely externalized in Gollum. Like the, like he is the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Right. And I think it does take away a little bit from Frodo's character. Like, I feel like, uh, we lose a lot of like internal conflict within him because we're seeing it acted so beautifully in Gollum. But, I mean, it's so worth it because Gollum is so amazing as a character. So, like, I understand why it's done, but it does it does ultimately, I think, end up taking away a little bit from Frodo. Um, and, yeah, I mean, this, this comes more to a head. I mean, I think it's why Frodo is able to lean down and say, hey, uh, you used to go by another name. That's why he does that whole gambit uh, a little bit later. Uh, because he saw the good in him and he's not like, it's not just like a trust fall into like a spike pit. He knows that there's a little bit of a net there. Uh, and that's something that's very much established in this scene. Mm. So, so you've got, um, so this, this is probably going to be one of the weirdest, like, uh, kind of heel turns, uh, of all time, but like, Let's so go. you've got this, <laughs> you've got this great play called, um, Eloise Parker goes to the moon. Um, and I like had to have a sit and and uh, like a cry uh, when I finished. It was brilliant. Um, oh, thank you so much. It, it was it was it was awesome, and I think it like really got so for our, uh, for our listeners. Um, it, it it's a great premise. Um, it is it deals with um, a woman who's just been diagnosed with cancer, um, and her um, preparation um, for uh, taking up like a experimental treatment um, or a treatment ish for the cancer, which is uh, going to space, going to the moon. Um, and, and there's this awesome dynamic in it um, between Eloise, the the protagonist, and and the moon. Um, and she's got about like a little under halfway through um, this this awesome kind of one two hit where she she delivers this kind of like real slim shady esque kind of soliloquy where where she's wondering if like when she looks in the mirror um, if. Um, if she is like the best, you know, the, the best of all possible worlds, like if she is the best version of herself or if there are better versions of herself out there. Um, and she kind of comes to the conclusion at the end of the soliloquy that like, yeah, she is like the best version of herself and oh fuck, isn't that kind of a nightmare? Um, but then it goes directly into this conversation she's having with the moon where the moon is kind of trying to convince her to cut herself off from, from the people around her, the people who love and care for her. Um, and, and that kind of has like a a golem kind of wow feeling yeah. to me like yeah, you know I what mean, I mean look, like I was I reading that and I was like this is gollum 
Yeah, well, I mean, that's 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 beautiful. I had never thought about it like that, but that's a hundred percent what that moment is. Um, and uh, it, I, yeah, it is interesting because the moon is about like the great unknown. I mean, that was a breakup play. Uh, that is a uh, that is just emotions. The play, right? Mm. It's 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 uh, actors really really love it because it is it's just a lot of feelings for like ninety yeah. minutes, and then you get to go home. Uh, but you know, the moon represents like the great unknown, like the, uh, the explore, like the explorer in all of us to like go to like burn everything we have to the ground and go out there and get the thing we want, which is very much Gollum. I mean, that's his entire thing. It's just like burn all your relationships, you know, get thrown out of your grandmother's house, uh, because you can't stop stealing and biting people, uh, and just get the ring. It just have you in the ring be, you know, alone together forever. And uh, at the end of Eloise Parker Goes to the Moon, uh, spoilers, uh, uh, she goes to the moon uh, and uh, she gets that thing she's always wanted. But like Gollum, I think it's never enough, right? Mm. Gollum can never have enough time with the ring. And this is this is a question I actually have for for the two of you. Um, cause you know, there's been a lot of interpretations over the years about Gollum being a stand in for like addiction and, uh, and that Tolkien like specifically was just like, this is like what I see when somebody is addicted to heroin, like having mm. that sort of passion for it. And I guess I, does that, does that theory hold water for you? Like, is this, is Gollum a good interpretation of addiction? Mm-hmm. Manu, do you want to kick off on that one? No, why? Because I'm the one addicted to pot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, halflings leaf, I believe. Pipe <laughs> weed. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I think I've definitely heard that take. I don't know if I've really considered it too much. I can see how you can put that reading on there. I don't think it's like necessarily unfounded or unbased. Hmm. I just don't know if that's really what the best allegory is but then again i don't know what i would necessarily offer as the best allegory for what the ring might mean to Gollum specifically or what the Mm -hmm. whole um split because i mean there's a lot of things that can be both corrupting and feel like you're battling with the best and worst parts of yourself and i guess in that sense i can see the addiction through line very well but it's not necessarily addiction that can cause that kind of you know fracturing of the mind or soul or however you want to consider it sure um so that is to say it's a land of contrasts. <laughs> yeah, I mean I think that's like basically fair. Um I guess for me there there's kind of this like weird context cuz obviously like cuz I cuz I live in Scotland uh, and and cuz you know uh this is the drug death capital of, uh, of, of the world. I think the city I live in is actually a drug death capital of, of, of Europe. Um, oh and, Dundee. and and I think so kind of addiction has like very, um, different kind of look and feel to me. Like I can definitely imagine Tolkien being who he was, um, uh, maybe having that kind of, uh, sort of, a grim, I guess, position on, on addiction. But, but for me, it's always kind of been more of like a, like a question of kind of like, um, and obviously when Tolkien's writing there, there's not really the sort of medical evidence for it yet, but, but, Hmm. but it's established at least as like a literary convention and sort of like an interpersonal dynamic, but like PTSD, um, and the sort of like conflict between like, you know, 
these guys went off and did, you know, quote unquote, great things in the war. Um, right. But they also got their fucking legs blown off and, you know, shot other people in the head. And like, how do you balance, you know, especially in uh, inner war Britain where, you know, the homes for heroes shit, you get a house, uh, a free house for the rest of your life and call the hero. But also you've just been overseas killing a whole bunch of guys who also <laughs> didn't want to be overseas killing a whole bunch of guys. Right. Um, and that kind of pull between like, oh, we're told that this is good and this makes me feel like I'm a hero with holy fuck I'm never going to be able to like look my wife in the eyes again or my children in the eyes again if that makes sense well no absolutely like it's it's like a splitting of the personality right there is there is yeah. that part of you that's still at war in conflict with the part of you that's desperately trying to move on which I think is Gollum and Smeagol also you know yeah. uh, in a nutshell I'm, I'm, so I'm kind of interested because I, I, I think like I feel like at least on this podcast we we always approach these questions as like uh, you know as audience members, but but you've got kind of a like a slightly different kind of experience uh, uh, of art generally, you know, being being a writer and like sure. um, how like. I'm not sure like the right way to, to kind of phrase this, but like, you know, writing a kind of dynamic like this or writing kind of, you know, fucked up characters and fucked up situations that are still ultimately like very deeply human. Like how would you as a writer kind of approach that, that issue of like, how do I make this little fucking freak, uh, feel like real and feel kind of understandable? Well, I think the key insight there is that uh, we all think that we are the freak of our own story. And that might just be like a thing that I'm projecting. But like, I think there's always a little part of us uh, in in all humanity that feels insecure, that feels like the weirdo. Uh, and, you know, when you tap into that, and I think the reason Gollum resonates as much as he does is there is... The, we, I think we all have that voice in our head that, that occasionally just tells us you should just burn everything to the ground and move <laughs> on. And, um, and you know, we have to qu always kind of constantly quiet it. And Gollum is just that, like, fully personified. Like, he, there is no filter anymore. He is, he is the best and worst parts of himself on the two polar ends simultaneously. And there is no in-between anymore. There's no, like, gray area with him. He is... Innocence incarnate, I think, with Smeagol, which is funny because, you know, when you go back and you dive into, like, Smeagol's history, he was always kind of a dick. Like, even before he got the <laughs> ring, he was just, like, no, like, he was kind of a bully. So it is interesting in the movies that they, they, they really, and in the books, I think, they really play up sort of the innocence of Smeagol, even though, like, canonically, he, I, I, he, he, just, cho he just choked out his cousin... Uh, for the ring, and it wasn't even like the ring had like a big power over him yet. He was just like, I want gold. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, I think I think that's really that's the key insight into it. And when you're crafting something uh, like this, it's to lean into the relatability of Smeagol and sort of the monstrousness of Gollum, and recognizing that both are always present. There are two. Hobbits inside of you. <laughs> <laughs> one yeah. is Gollum and one is Smeagol. I don't think that fanfic is allowed to be aired on a podcast. I mean, I could voice it is the problem. <laughs> I could absolutely voice it. <laughs> yeah, my brother, my podcast, or my brother, my captain, my pod after dark. <laughs> <laughs> Gollum nights. 
<laughs> oh lord there's this like awful fan theory well not awful i i think it's hilarious there's this like fan theory um that i you know kind of re- revives itself uh every i don't know every couple of years or whatever where people are like oh well you know the shire has like a level of protection over it, which is why like the ring feels like it's basically bullshit, fake magic, uh, it, when it's in the Shire and the closer they get to Mordor, the, the like more evil and, and kind of weighty it feels, which is obviously just like a, a totally ignoring the whole point of the story. But, right. um, I always like that because in, in the context of Smeagol straight up murdering his cousin within seconds of laying eyes on the ring, it does totally reinforce what you're saying, which is dude's just a prick from the start. Yeah. It just brought out sort of the worst part of him. And I think the thing, the magic trick that it kind of pulls on you, the, I mean, both the movies and the books, uh, is just that you really, really want him to get better. Even mm. until he's literally, until he's plummeting into Mount Doom. Uh, spoilers for the end of this. Uh, <laughs> but when he's plummeting into Mount Doom, you're still like, oh, but maybe he'll catch his hand on a rock and maybe he'll get better. Because you don't, you you desperately love Smeagol so much that you don't, you don't, you want, you want to believe that you can also get better. That the mm. golem inside of you can be vanquished by the Smeagol. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I was going to, um, so Tolkien obviously in the aftermath, the the devastating aftermath after these books came out, got loads and loads and loads of, of letters um, about about what the fuck Gollum is and what the fuck he's meant to be. Um, right. And a whole bunch of them have like been published in, in his kind of collections. Um, and I was going to go and, and grab it, but then I was like, I know exactly what he says in all of these letters about Gollum. And like, I'm never going to, like, I don't want to touch it and I don't want to bring it in because it's kind of like a, a ruthlessly sort of... I don't even want to call it like a ruthlessly Catholic take on people because it like it is, it's very much like some, like not some that that would be the Calvinist take, uh, you know, original <laughs> sin exists. We are all tainted by sin. None of us are free of sin. Right. Um, but like his kind of take on it is, you know, Gollum could have never been like rehabilitated or, 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 or sort of, uh, not resurrected, but like rehabbed, you know, you know, Gollum could have never sort of come back from the brink. And I'm uh, like, sure. Like Tolkien is absolutely allowed to say that, but it's such like a fucking grim take to have on Gollum. I think for all the, the, the reasons that, that you get there. And I think it is kind of an interesting, um, and I hate, I hate doing this, but like, I have to have to hand it to Peter Jackson on this one. Cause there is a <laughs> lot more optimism in, the, the film Gollum, I think, than, than the book Gollum where Tolkien is always around the corner being like, almost time for you to die, bitch. T- like, TikTok. <laughs> TikTok. It's just, Gollum just looks to the side and it's just J.R.R. Tolkien just tapping a watch going, come on, we gotta go. There's some lava. It's got your name on it, buddy. Uh, it's all, But that take is also incredibly anti-Catholic, which is like also crazy to me because everyone in Catholicism is uh, is redeemable forgiveness yeah. is for everyone they have steps that you can take it's <laughs> it is a it is a christian bureaucracy you can <laughs> you can fill out the proper paperwork and be absolved and, you know for a while there you had to pay for the paperwork but now uh. you know you don't have to pay for it anymore so i guess step up but uh and you know it, it's so hypocritical because of course Gollum could be uh, of course Smeagol could be saved it's the tragedy of it that he's not but you have to believe up until the very end 
that he can be saved or else there's no there's no tension there's no drama there and I think Tolkien's writing actually betrays him at several points because he does make Smeagol sympathetic. And it does seem to be apparent, even if in his brain he's just like, yeah, this irredeemable little fuck. <laughs> like, in his head, he's just like, in the writing itself, the character comes across. And sometimes this will happen, you know, you'll be writing a character and the character will end up just kind of writing itself. And it will become something that you, bigger than what you could have ever imagined for for that character. And I think that's what happened with Gollum and Smeagol. Like, in spite of Tolkien's best efforts, I really want Smeagol to get better. Mm. Yeah. It, it, so it's interesting, like, uh, to, you know, the, the sort of dramatic element of, of of the possibility, the very real possibility, at least in the films, of, of, of Smeagol having his redemption. Um, because it, it kind of comes on a lot of changes that um, I don't know... Like, I don't know how I feel about them. Because, like, in the books, like, Frodo doesn't take his dive into the water. <laughs> like, like he doesn't. He, stay, yeah. he stays dry. Like, Sam eats shit, and Gollum is like, walk much, bitch. And that that's pretty much it. And, and I'm constantly, like, fighting myself on this, like, with a whole bunch of these changes, like, all the way through the films, where I'm like, okay, like, yes, it does heighten, like, the, the, the sort of tension of the scene, but also, like, do we need it? Like, oh, it looks cool. Do we need it? And, and, and mm. like... The Gollum one is kind of one of the few things where I'm like, actually, like they could have changed nothing. And I think the outcome in the film would have been the same just because they are like, like it's impossible to not feel that like sympathy towards Gollum. But then they add Frodo's midnight swim and it's like, mm, yeah, what do we do with that? He's got those big eyes. You can't deny those big eyes. <laughs> There's Alita battle angel eyes. I mean, come on. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, how many, like, Manu, how many, po- like, po- what is it, polygons, polycules? Polygons, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Gollum only had, like, 5,000 polygons or something in his eyes, whereas Alita Battle Angel had, like, 9 million. I think that was the stats Whoa. I pulled. That's, that's, uh, you know what, that's too many. That's, I draw the line. 9 million, too many polygons to have in one's eyes. My waifu has too many polygons in her eyes. It's ruining my life. <laughs> we go into the following night now and perhaps not by mistake the first thing the camera centers on is mordor and mount doom erupting in the distance before the camera pans down to our characters the first thing i want to flag is this is the first instance we see of frodo being unable to sleep his insomnia is played up in the film adaptation as he does get some shut eye at points in the book but minus a few fleeting moments sleep is not coming for baggins anytime soon Instead, we catch him stroking the ring gently. Everything has this green-gray pallor to it under the night sky near Mordor. It's distinctive from the blue tint we discussed during the Fangorn scene, but the image is no less clear, and the ring still shines in center frame. Off-screen, we start to hear Gollum go Gollum mode, narrating about the precious, which suddenly alerts Frodo that he isn't the only one not sleeping. While Frodo does react abruptly, the words Gollum is saying are what I imagine were running through Frodo's head just a moment before. Frodo hastily puts the ring away and gets up. Notice how the camera zooms in on Frodo here. This sort of short zoom in often denotes some kind of revelation or shock, which could be about Gollum talking as if he still owned the precious, or Frodo realizing this might be a time to confront Gollum with Sam the Gollum skeptic currently sleeping. Gollum looks great here, by the way. I mean, he looks like a decrepit gangle creature, but in terms of effects and physical space he takes up, he looks great. Mm -hmm. Frodo first accosts Gollum harshly. Who are you? He says while standing up and looking down on Gollum, which Gollum kind of just brushes off. 
but it's when Frodo kneels down and starts talking to Gollum about his past, how he wasn't too different from a hobbit once, that Gollum actually starts to listen. While the two-sided Gollum reveal comes just a bit later, I think here we see the Gollum persona trying to ignore Frodo as he relays all that Gandalf relays all that Gandalf told him about this creature. When Frodo says he was like a hobbit once, Gollum sadly looks down as if in thought before Frodo really hits the target. Smeagol. Gollum looks up, huge blue eyes open with sadness and wonder, as if hearing his long-forgotten name was a minor miracle. His face looks less like a villain and more like an innocent, a victim of circumstance for just the briefest of moments. And just then, as Gollum reiterates his name, a smile comes across his face. I think the first truly earnest and sincere smile from this character. You can go back to our second Two Towers episode, The Taming of Smeagol, where we talk a little more about Gollum's name specifically and how Frodo uses it to identify humanity within him. I forgot about the Gollum smile there. because So I recently learned that um, like newborn babies only smile when they're shitting themselves. Um, and Gollum <laughs> smiling that definitely has that energy. <laughs> really changes the temper of that scene. Yeah, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, uh, I feel like I feel as like joyless resident joyless book nerd, it does merit chatting briefly about the fact that like, um, so in the books, um, Frodo out cold, knocked out cold during the scene. It's actually Sam, uh, Sam listening to Gollum have this interaction with himself with Smeagol. Um, and I guess like, you know, um, one of the kind of changes between the books and, um, and the films necessarily is like the question of like who is witnessing what. Um, and like, I feel like the films kind of take like a really kind of strong position, like, or, or, or have a kind of strong thesis, which is that like, um, everything the audience sees on screen is true. Um, there's never any question about like ambiguity or like uh, uh, like unreliable narrators, um, whereas the books very much don't take that position. And so like Sam sitting there hearing all of that, uh, hearing Gollum really go at it, um, has the kind of air of like, is this really real or is this just Sam kind of experiencing something um, and he's not really sure how to like, uh, like what kind of gloss to put on it. And so he's, he's assuming that it's reality, but actually it's a dream or a hallucination or whatever. Um, and I, I feel like there's kind of something interesting in, in having um, in the books, this thing be uh, something that's only kind of passively experienced. It's entirely Gollum's moment. Um, and then in the films, having Frodo jump right into it and, and interact and, and suddenly it's Gollum, Gollum's show, but it's really also mostly Frodo's show. I think it's very interesting because it's it's a really clever way to also get exp- some exposition out of the way. Um, to be like, to like really reinforce in the audience, you used to be someone else. Your name was Smeagol. And, uh, you know, it's just very like serving it on a plate. And uh, you get Andy Serkis is just, I mean, he's just one of the best actors we got. Uh, Mm. And he has a move that he does, which is very interesting in most of his motion capture, where he's able to like pull his head back a little bit and uh, like very subtly kind of collapse in on himself a little bit, and when Smeagol, ha- after he says, uh, what did you call me, uh, and Frodo says, that was your name once, 
he he kind of collapses in on himself as if there was like a, a singular point of like warmth in his chest that he hadn't felt since he was Smeagol that just suddenly like lights up for the first time. And, you know, one of the big things about that I find about tragic characters is that you know, there always has to be an opportunity for them to be saved. And had this conversation in the films been allowed to continue, I think that we really could have seen maybe more of Smeagol coming out and maybe maybe less Gollum influence. And obviously this little moment will lead into the big confrontation between Smeagol and Gollum a little bit later on. But... Uh, to just, like, it, it's just so close. Like, you just want to reach out and be like, it's okay, you can be Smeagol, I promise, it's gonna be fine. And then, of course, we're interrupted by uh, a demon flying through the air. <laughs> I did want to do a quick little accounting in terms of some of the book adaptation stuff. Um, a lot of uh, what Frodo is saying to Gollum here, specifically about his name, uh, was actually in the Taming of Smeagol chapter when they found him in the Emin Wheel. And the kind of Gollum monologue that Emily was referring to that Sam overhears, that's kind of split between the end of this movie where, you know, Gollum is talking to himself like maybe she can do it. And then again at the beginning of Return of the King, which I think is just kind of structurally moved around since Shelob is not in this movie. So they kind of moved all the talk about she into kind of the tease for the next film and then the beginning of the next film as well. Yeah. Um, I forgot they'd moved all of the the Shelob stuff from uh, the middle of this bit to to the end of the film. Um, And that's kind of interesting to me as well, because like, I guess there's an element of in the books, right? When Sam is overhearing this, he's overhearing like a a decent amount of kind of crucial information. Um, But it also kind of goes back to like the fact that he doesn't really make too much of a stink about it because he's, he's got this like kind of ultimate subservience to Frodo and Frodo's whims kind of goes back to that, that whole point. Um, I was making a couple episodes ago about like this kind of like Ariel and Caliban kind of dynamic between Sam and, and Gollum where like Sam has like has kind of adopted the, this sort of hyper deferential position relative to Frodo and also kind of assumes that like he's, you know, his name literally means like halfwit um, Samwise means halfwit. Um, and, and he's, he's definitely like inter- internalized that, that kind of naming that nominative determinism. Um, mm. And so it's like hearing all of this information in the book and is like, uh, yeah, okay. Like I can't really do anything with that. Um, it's probably not important enough for me to raise. So I just won't. Um, and that would be kind of a problem for the way that they've set up the conflict and the films where they've, they've wiped that class dynamic. Um, and instead it's this like deeply interpersonal mm. conflict between, between Gollum and Sam where like Sam is seeing clearly what Frodo cannot because Frodo is blinded by the fact that he is looking at this like dark world mirror, this like Jekyll to his hide. Um, and so yeah. like Sam has all of the facts, um, and just can't break through Frodo's kind of hysteria, histrionics, whatever. Um, in the book, though, it's very much like Sam has all of the information, but because he's like, oh, a dumb little servant, like doesn't really know what to do with it and and can't interpret it properly. Um, and, and it's just that that kind of like interesting kind of moment where where, um, you know, flattening the kind of class dynamics of both Gollum and Sam Um Actually, I would say probably works for the better here overall, even though I usually kind of get quite <laughs> cranky about it. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say it would if like uh, Sam overheard all that stuff Gollum was saying that he overhears at the uh, beginning of Return of the King. It really wouldn't make sense that he would be OK with Gollum like at this point. 
um, it yeah. makes sense for uh, him to kind of yeah. turn on Gollum or be more like sure that Gollum is going to turn on them as they're that close to uh, Kirith Ungol and the stair and all that stuff. Um, so this way it doesn't ruin Sam's character. It's like, oh, well, I heard Gollum is going to murder us, but I'm just going to let him get us through the Dead Marshes and then to the <laughs> Black Gate. And then um, so I just think that it just kind of works that way. I agree with you, though. It is a change that comes out of what they've done with the dynamics for the film adaptation. Well, good American hobbits don't have class. <laughs> <laughs> good American hobbits doing uh, broad accent work, let's say. <laughs> Frodo and Gollum's heart-to-heart is immediately cut short at just that moment. A familiar but terrifying shriek rings through the air, and it wakes Samwise from his slumber. Sam yells, Black Riders, and we get to see all the characters looking at it off-screen, but not reveal to us, the audience, just yet. It feels like we're going to get an escape from the Shire 2.0, with Sam and Frodo ducking in the underbrush to hide from them once again. While Gollum urges everyone to hide, Frodo is overcome by a fit of memory and pain. He's flashing back to Weathertop and that knife in the dark, and the pain in his shoulder comes alive as if the blade is still in him. Sam backtracks to help Frodo into hiding, and one thing I caught this time is Sam's hand wrapping around Frodo as he drags him away. Usually you just get under someone's armpit so you can, like, fireman carry them to safety, but Sam makes sure to hold onto Frodo's hand the entire way as they duck under a mangrove or bush or whatever. I don't know. Bushes. Shrub. Sam thought they were dead, but Gollum gives him a rude awakening. They can't be killed, or at least not in the way you'd kill any other foe. In the books, following the flooding of the fords, we do get whiffs of the Nazgul's movement in Book Two of Fellowship. Legolas even turns one away on the Great River, so their presence was never really removed. From a film standpoint, especially back in 02, this was a bit of a surprise. Not like a huge one, but I didn't catch any of, any of the Nazgul in the trailers for this movie, and they were not really discussed after Rivendell within the story, so they just kind of slipped from my mind. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I kind of feel like I'm always of two minds with these guys showing back up again. Like one, it's important. I feel like to kind of show that they are still a menace because otherwise when the witch King shows up in like his super prominent role later and return of the King, we actually know who the fuck this dude is. And it's not like, Oh, he's squaring up with Gandalf and then immediately gets murked by a chick. Like that's, that's all he is. But also (laughs) they do look so fucking bumbling now that they show up here and like straight up miss the like one thing. Cause in, in, uh, in fellowship, Aragorn makes it out. Like the ring is like a beacon to them. Right. And so like, presumably they've got like their smartwatch, like radar, whatever. Um, and so should be able to figure out where Frodo is, but just totally with it on that. These guys look so fucking bumbling. Like, um, who, who are the, the little pig boy, uh, pain and panic and Disney's Hercules, like the fallen ass backwards down. We the don't know where the of. ring is. yes awesome uh yeah that is the witch king of angmar actually (laughs) i you said smart watches and i'm just picturing the nazgul being like gotta get my steps in (laughs) (laughs) i wonder if horse riding counts for surely it must like all the dressage types would be furious if it didn't (laughs) and you don't want to piss off the dressage types (laughs) oh believe me (laughs) 
Oh, yeah. Oh, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I, there was like a whole haunted history I heard in your voice there, Emily. <laughs> Um, so back in the day, uh, I used to live in the great state, great Commonwealth, rather, of Virginia, and the horse people Ooh. there plague the Democratic Party campaigns. And it used to be like, so so there were like two calls you could make when you were phone banking. The good call, which was calling Dave Matthews of Dave Matthews Band, because he would oh, always hell give you like yeah. thousands. Yeah. Um, and the bad calls were the horse people. And they would be like, um, my horse doesn't have enough land inside the beltway. Um, what is the president going to do about that bitch who the fuck knows but anyways yeah those are i i feel my heart rate like goes up just thinking about the well if it's any consolation uh most of their horses are at the bottom of the dead marsh so (laughs) Uh, the funny thing about your observation about how this kind of makes the nazgul look like chumps is um funnily enough i got that impression like rereading the books when the nazgul are just like messengers for Sauron and like just running his messages to Isengard and back. It just like felt like you could have just sent an email, man. You don't have to send the fucking Nazgul, like the nine most terrifying evil beings in the world. Um, I mean, I, I know that, you know, he, there was a chance the ring could have been there. So you want to send one of your top generals, but um, they just seemed like they were doing bitch work. And um, I probably shouldn't use that word. Sounds like they were doing administrative work uh, for Sauron. Yeah. <laughs> well, so the, in the 81 BBC radio adaptation, right? Oh God, uh, bless their souls at the BBC. Um, they have a whole scene where the Nazgul show up and um, it's taken from the unfinished tale. The Nazgul show up at Isengard and are like harassing Sauron to know where the ring bearer is. Um, but it being the BBC in the 1980s, um, they obviously don't have like a great sound budget and also don't have like a great stock sound library so the horse's hooves that they use for the Nazgul sound like the bit in Monty Python and the Holy Grail where they're using the coconut halves <laughs> just get, like the Heck coconut yeah. clopping and then the most like horrific like caricature of a British received pronunciation accent being like the lord of the black land <laughs> it's awesome it's so like ridiculous and like now you'd call it camp but back then it was just holy shit the bbc is not funded enough why i'm the lord of the blackland i is i got two coconuts painted them together (laughs) it's exactly that that was my impression of elijah wood in the lord of the rings trilogy i'm kidding i'm kidding his accent is fine his accent is fine (laughs) since we're on the topic of their mounts. I like that Sam calls them black riders here um, and not the Nazgul, uh, partially just because they are riding something. And because he said black riders, uh, that kind of put in my mind, they're going to show up at, on horse instead of on what they do. Mm. Yeah, like the whole kind of naming things is a big thing. And uh, well, duh, obviously, uh, but like, y- you know, using naming as a way of like adding texture to the kind of story is a thing Tolkien loves, because like this is why every character has 50 different names and 50 different languages. But he also like does it to show kind of parochialism or cosmopolitanism um and and you get it in um uh you know in kind of the smaller things like this where like you know Gandalf would call them by like the scientific latin name he would call them the Nazgul and um, whereas mm. Sam who's a bit more sort of pedestrian parochial is like oh well they're the black riders and it's like yes yeah, Sam they are all dressed in black and riding horses that is very good um but it is just one of these lovely lovely details that I I am always <laughs> kind of grateful for Tolkien thrown in there the first shots of the Nazgul are just its lobstered gauntlets grasping a leather strap, something I would assume is attached to a saddle. 
And on this close-up of its hands, the Nazgul is slowly bouncing up and down as if on a horse, which again is what I expected them to pull out, pull up on. The Nazgul is also making a sniffing sound, something we last saw when the four hobbits were hiding under the big tree on their shortcut to mushrooms. We get one cut back to Sam and Frodo before the reveal of the Nazgul's mount, and I like that Sam's eyeline doesn't betray the reveal. He could very well be looking at it upon a horse, but then the next shot back to the Nazgul zooms out to reveal the fell beast it is on. Mm. Gollum calls it Wraiths on Wings. We get, in my opinion, a pretty sick shot of the Nazgul flying over the dead marshes, banking and swooping as it surveys the land. We start hearing the ring whispering to Frodo, and the music from what from when they fled the Shire can be heard here, and I think it will come up again at this film's ending in Askiliath. Frodo tries to slip on the ring, but Sam once again grabs his hand, and the urge passes. Sam truly understands his master in that moment. Yeah, so, okay, so AJ, this is another, like, girling you about your CV kind of moment here. Um, oh, great. You just did, like, a, a play uh, on Zoom. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, man, it really got me thinking about like, because I I feel like this whole scene here, like it's it's very like hues very closely to what's in the book, but it's also totally different from the book by virtue of obviously it being film and like, you know, you have to make different adaptive choices based off of the, the like the medium you're using and right. and you know doing a play on zoom is like a very specific choice and i guess i'm i'm kind of interested to know like what your kind of thought process was behind you know obviously everybody's on zoom now but like picking zoom as a, like a, a a platform for <laughs> for a play <laughs> oh my god so uh that play i wrote uh in july of 2020 uh, which was at the height of the pandemic. There's a, a theater festival uh, called Rule of Seven by Seven, where seven playwrights get together and they all pitch a rule for a play to adhere to, and then uh, each playwright <laughs> then has to write a play based on all uh, uh, each of those seven rules. They have to be incorporated in some way, and you know, it might be a rule like on page three, a loud noise, or you know, an exact line that somebody has to use, um, like uh, "What if I never feel okay again?" Which is the ending of. Um, in that play that you're talking about, uh, which is, uh, the, the play title is actually longer than the play itself, but it is called uh, All Things Considered. It was probably the most productive meeting the Escondido Unified School District PTA ever had. Uh, and um, it's about a principal, a teacher, um, and, a, uh, and a parent all on Zoom together just eventually venting their trying to run a very normal PTA and eventually just venting their feelings about what it's like to be uh to be in lockdown with kids because there was this amazing like period of time early on in the pandemic where all these like national like pundits and newscasters were getting on television like national television and saying god i hate my kids to like (laughs) a crowd of millions of people and my brain went how do you do that because i don't have kids um and i haven't really you know i I haven't worked you know worked with kids a lot i didn't grow up with a lot of uh i i didn't grow up with like a lot of younger cousins or like siblings i'm the youngest in my family so i didn't really have any interaction uh really with with kids growing up so i was just like so how like, how can you, what, what would prompt someone to say that? And then it was me digging into that and trying to figure out, like, how to make that relatable and how to make that into a um, a, a nice dramatic work. Uh, but the reason I chose Zoom was because uh, I, I that was one of two 
projects I was working on during the pandemic. Uh, the other that the other was a um, I told a story using Instagram stories uh, nice. set in the world of Animal Crossing, uh, <laughs> where I adapted uh, the Island of Doctor Moreau. Uh, oh <laughs> into into Animal Crossing and then kind of made it into its own thing. It was basically my, me doing my own version of Lost, but very like existentialist and very sad. Uh, I'm very, very proud of it, but I never ended up finishing it because it was so much time and work. But I did it for about a year and a half. Um, and it was about, okay, so theater is dead and probably not coming back for the foreseeable future. How do I use a new medium to do make art that I still love? And Zoom was certainly part of that. And, you know, to tie it back into Lord of the Rings, and particularly this scene, uh, when you read these words uh, uh, on the page, when you read about the Nazgul on the page flying over the marshes, it feels like you can kind of get a sense of the scope of it. But it, at least when I read things in my mind, I have trouble picturing, like, huge, enormous spaces. Like, everything mm -hmm. kind of in my brain picture like fits pretty close together uh and what i think this the film medium captures especially with the lord of the rings is just the expanse of middle earth like these marshes that we've seen very close up of just them you know working their way through it are you know uh intimidating but not like gargantuan and then you see the nazgul fly over it and it's like oh this is like this is like a like a continent. This is like a whole world, uh, and you know, I I think it it actually makes the it, it heightens the text in in this case uh, in a very beautiful way. Mm. So it's interesting because because the um, the the zoom thing is the opposite almost of what's going on here, where it's like this yeah. kind of closer. Um, yeah, uh, literally, like a like a closer cropped sort of image. Um, and one of the things I think we, we go back and forth on all the time on this podcast is like the the question of like limitations. Um, and uh, like, well, now I think particularly in the late in in the the world of Disney and uh, Marvel as the the sort of dominating features of the cinema landscape, like the lack of limitations. Um, and right. I guess like you know, in scenes like this, you know, you don't really feel like there's a there's a limit to what they can do even though, you know, there very much is, but like, as you were like writing, um, or, or like, as you were sort of planning out how, like either, um, through, through Instagram or Instagram stories or through this, like this, this framing device of zoom, like how did the kind of like limitations, like the inherent limitations to that shape, how like you were thinking about the narrative, if that makes sense, like the way that you were going to write it? Absolutely. Well, um, I, the, the funny thing about the Zoom play was uh, I had been asked to do seven by seven um, a couple for a couple months or like uh, usually I would just submit myself when I had like a good idea for it. I wasn't just, you know, writing to write. Um, and it was very important to me that I pick a concept that would work on Zoom because what was happening, especially in those early days of the pandemic, where people were just throwing up uh, theater scripts uh, into the void of Zoom and it's that's mostly where theater scripts I think go to die. You have mm -hmm. to adapt it to the medium because it is very very specific. It is a little box that you have and you have to figure out ways to communicate the same vibe or feeling of the theater script without having an audience there. So, yeah, I I I think that 
limitations for me always breed like the best stuff because if you're just like if you just have this great void of like you have a blank stage go my mind immediately like caves in on itself because <laughs> I am racked with indecision uh, and which is why adaptations are so fun because you have the bones there already and then you just get to pick the parts that you like and then expand on them uh, there's always a roadmap I think that you know the Instagram stories thing is also very interesting because you only have a cert a very limited amount of time to do things. So you can't put too much text on any one slide or people might miss it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can't you can't like put too complex an image in front of them uh, and expect them to like pick out the little things. Like it really focuses you on like just filmmaking techniques of how to like uh, position a shot. I learned so much from filmmaking of just having to pose these little uh Animal Crossing creatures in like the photo mode, and just having them like uh, <laughs> do an emote reaction, take a screenshot. My 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 phone is a graveyard of just uh, photos of Stu, the blue ox from <laughs> Animal Crossing, uh, going through like grieving the death of his adopted daughter. Uh, oh my God. So like, uh, you know, I, and that's what's fun for me. The, uh, the limitations are what's fun for me, and what I think that. The movies of of Lord of the Rings do extraordinarily well. Is that in this world where of Marvel, where everything is possible, so let's do anything? They really pick the moments to do everything. You know, for the most mm. part, I feel like it's very good at focusing in on what's important. And this moment where the Nazgul is flying over, because we're just we're so stuck on the ground with the hobbits, like we're in the muck with them. Literally, we're we're stepping in the porridge with them, right? Mm. But the Nazgul all of a sudden give us this bird's eye view and it's like, oh, they are tiny specks in a landscape that is trying <laughs> desperately to kill them. Mm. Uh, and I think that's just, I think that's remarkably refreshing. Yeah. It, it, it's funny as well, like the, this kind of uh, using the, the Nazgul to, to pull out a to pull out of the frame, to pull the frame out, I guess, to, to zoom out. Um, yeah. Cause I, cause I think there's like, you know, obviously they show up and, uh, in the book, it's where you get the wraiths on wings. And again, this is Howard Shore naming that track and, and the score of wraiths on wings. Cause dude fucked off to a cabin for however many months and wrote for the book. Um, yeah. but you get this sort of like expanding outwards, um, with what they're doing, but it also kind of raises the question of, okay, are these guys just doing fucking donuts? Like, is this their like parking lot on yeah. a, like Friday afternoon outside of Seven Eleven, or like, what the hell? Why are these guys here? Nazgul got to blow off steam, you know, they got to, <laughs> yeah, they got they got their fun somewhere. Yeah. That was actually going to be my next question is why do we think the Nazgul are here either in film or in text or whatever headcanon you may have? What I kind of went with or have mm. dealt with with the, last 20 years is the Nazgul are at least vaguely aware that the ring might be somewhere in the area because they're kind of drawn to it. Like Aragorn mentioned, which you mentioned a bit earlier, Emily, and also that being this close to Mordor, the eye of the enemy is just more watchful. Um, there are more spies about and Gollum already explained that orcs don't go into the marshes. So they need to, you know, lean on aerial surveillance, so to speak. Yeah, the fucking, uh, you know, Sauron's the big innovator of uh, of Middle Earth, and he has gone out and invented the Predator drone uh, and is about to fuck up some Hobbit weddings. Sam and Rosie, oh no. Yeah, and as the Hobbits disintegrate, they also say thanks, Obama. <laughs> <laughs>
Obama sounds like I, a Hobbit name, to be honest. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Oh, it does. God. Mungo Obama. <laughs> Jesus. And um, in Lord of the Rings Online, they've got all these like brilliant little Hobbit hobbits just hanging hanging out. Um, and there's one fucking Hobbit. I, every time I walk by him in the game, I just lose my mind. He's he's called. <laughs> Bungo Chub. <laughs> Bungo Chub? Yep. <laughs> and it's like one of these yes. things where like, you know, this game is like the, the story, the game is like, you know, routinely accused of being grimdark. And I'm like, fucking Bungo Chub. Like, no, <laughs> no grimdark here. <laughs> oh, God. I'm going to get off this and write the uh, Bungo Chub traverses the dead marshes and gets taken out by like hellfire, <laughs> hell be- uh, fell beast hellfire. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lord. you know, I, I, I think the Nazgul are here uh, because their fell beasts just kind of need to stretch their wings, you know, a little bit, get, get some nice school exercise in. Uh, I mean, they can't spend all of their days, you know, calling Emily and saying, what, what is Sauron going to do to get us more room for our fell beasts <laughs> on the south side of Mordor, right? Like, you know, they have to, they have to exercise their fell beasts. Yeah. Walkies yeah. for the fell beast. <laughs> it's like in uh, Chicago here, we have to take our cars out regularly during the winter so they don't like have the engine freeze over from the, you know, deathly cold. So oh, I figure yeah. the fell beasts are oh, basically like... The Volkswagens of Mordor, or something like that. <laughs> I just imagine one of the Nazgul getting on a fell beast and like kicking it and going, "Yeah!" And it just explodes underneath. <laughs> <laughs> you should have taken it out. <laughs> There's actually uh, ten Black Riders, but one of them had to get out and push around Isengard. <laughs> Come on, you're embarrassing me. Go fly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is a very somber way to lead into our discussion of the fell beasts, the new mounts for the Nazgul, uh, which uh, we should clarify that sometimes Nazgul, fell beast, the actual like nine ring rays or their, you know, flying beast, they're all just kind of referred to as Nazgul at various times. Emily, where do the fell beasts come from? It's a good question. So there's not actually like an answer answer. Um, although, um, the so Sauron and Morgoth, right? They had this like weird kind of zookeeper thing. Matt Damon's We Bought a Zoo, um, <laughs> and they they create like a whole bunch of animals. So they've got like the Balrogs, the Balrogs of Morgoth, um. But then there's also like the orcs that they create, and Sauron's kind of a weird guy and spends a lot of time like vaguely half underground and Thangorodream and his like citadel in the volcano being a weirdo. So it's probable that like. He he made the fell beasts as like his cats or whatever. And he was very into like genetic engineering, um, but we don't actually know for sure. So it's definitely one of these things where it's like, whatever you come up with in your head is the truth. Yeah. For some reason, I thought I heard that maybe they were like eagles that were corrupted by Sauron or Morgoth or something. Yeah. It's quite a popular theory. It, um, there's the eagles. And then there's also, so they're, um, so, so dragons are kind of an interesting thing in the legendarium because there aren't a huge number of actual dragons. The last one in Middle Earth is Smaug, who gets his shit rocked uh, in The Hobbit. Um, and, uh, you know, there are like a lot of like 
smaller, lower ranking dragons who aren't really dragons. Um, and, it, you know, it could have been one of them or not one of them, but, you know, some of them that kind of fell further to the dark side. Um, there are also like a lot of weird kind of flying beasts that are never fully named, like in the Silmarillion and the Unfinished Tales. Um, but yeah, the Eagle series is like a super popular one. Personally, I'm not a fan because I don't know what you had, would have to do to an eagle to get that long of a neck out of it. It just like just doesn't make sense. I still assume like the con- conservation of mass applies to Middle Earth. I'm not actually sure if that's true given all the magic, but it's whatever. like um, the droid factory scene in Attack of the Clones uh, with three PO. <laughs> oh God! Oh wow! Yeah. <laughs> The movies depict the fell beasts as wyverns, essentially two-legged dragons, though their whole neck and head thing is more akin to a snake or reptile than the dragons we've seen, whether it be smog or dragons from other stuff like thrones. They have a long tail and bat-like wings in this version as well, and often wear a piece of armor on the head. Long spikes adorn uh, adorn its spine. One of my favorite little design elements here is that their wings have holes in them, properly showing decay and corruption to fit into Sauron's whole deal. Mm. Other interpretations of the fell beasts include a more pterodactyl look or even a winged horse in the Rankin-Bass 1980 Return of the King adaptation. (laughs) The most batshit interpretation of them. It's a really good one. Definitely Google it. (laughs) Oh, I just did. Oh, my God. Look at them. (laughs) Oh, we should just do like Rankin Bass 1980 live reactions and just show people oh, pictures God. of it and get get them on mic. <laughs> live slug reaction. Yeah. You know, you know who really could have used those wings is Artax. Oh <laughs> Lord. <laughs> and it, the Fell Beast's main attack appeared to be using its massive body to just bulldoze light artillery and soldiers, or using its massive claws to pick up and throw enemies, which we'll see a lot of in Return of the King. God, there's a really gnarly one where some dude gets like picked up and dropped like 10 stories up in Minas Tirith. And I think that's maybe the only death in Lord of the Rings where I've actually been like, ooh, a bit much, man. <laughs> uh, is there ever a point where someone throws a spear at one of these fell beasts and it goes through one of the holes in their wings? Like it was just like a total, like a total biffing it of he's just like, I'm going to get it. Oh, no. what are the odds? <laughs> Uh, that is actually so Amor uh nails those two uh olifants in one go and like high off of that win tries and flies too close to the sun on that and just ends up in fucking misery for the rest of his days for getting known that hard hey everybody it's a guy who couldn't hit a fell beast <laughs> and then and then his king died because of it yeah I, I think there's a perfect little <laughs> oh, story here oh no <laughs> <laughs> For our cinematography section today, we're going to go into Frodo's dunking, his quick dip in the pool, one of their more memorable and surreal shots in this trilogy. We start with Frodo approaching the lip of a pond with an upshot as Frodo walks towards the camera. Upshot usually denoting dominance, but here in Elijah Wood's eyes we see ensorcelment and confusion. He is fully fixated on the corpse he is staring at. The camera cuts to the water, which is this wonderful murky brown with dead reeds at the edge of frame, some mud or algae on the surface that gives it texture and griminess. The corpse itself, under the brown water, can be seen to have golden armor and pale white skin, haunting in its own right. But the camera slowly tilts up and zooms in on the face, cutting back to Frodo as he edges closer and closer to the water and camera. There is a sinister string arrangement playing in the score at this point, building and building. 
The corpse's eyes open, accompanied by a single bass note, and the rest of the instruments stop. It's really great how the sound and the eyes open at the same the sound drops and the eyes open at the same moment, like as if your heart stopped beating for just a moment. And Frodo basically goes limp as a bonefish, just full on face planting into the water, <laughs> seemingly called to it and helpless to put up any resistance. Into the water we goes, and the seemingly shallow-looking pond seems much, much deeper when Frodo is fully submerged. The physical body is gone, but as Frodo stares down into the murk, he sees ghostly apparitions slowly coming up to grab him. One takes center frame, but other spirits can be seen at the edges. Gives me a little bit of the uh, vibes from the ending of Raiders of the Lost Ark and the way the spirits looked coming out of the Lost Ark. Mm. The phantoms also look pretty gnarly, no pupils in the eyes, lip and gum lines pulled back, so there's a lot of teeth. Teeth, lots of teeth. <laughs> as the camera cuts back to Frodo, we can see other apparitions forming behind and around him as well. The main ghost, the one Frodo is staring at, I guess, reaches a hand out to try and grab Frodo. And just this time, I flag that it kind of reminds me of Weathertop and Frodo in the Twilight World with the Witch King extending his hand to try and take the ring from Frodo before stabbing him and giving him that shoulder wound. Um, Jesus. Um, I Yeah, so I realize now that this is an absolutely insane time to mention this, um, but uh, I've just remembered that all of these people are probably related in various ways to Arwen. Uh, so when Frodo's like oh. potentially about to get stabbed out uh, by this random elf underwater, um, it's very likely that that elf is like, uncle cousin bro, like late brother whatever to to arwen uh so i imagine later uh, and menestareth when he meets arwen he's like man i've seen too fucking much of your family lately a lot of teeth a lot of their teeth <laughs> <laughs> we get a super close-up of frodo's eyes next the entire frame tinted green but frodo's eyes still shining blue the ghosts all converge on frodo until finally Gollum reaches in and pulls him out I, uh, like, I know it's kind of passe at this point to be like, oh, wow, in the 2000s, everybody was really scared of volcanoes because every single movie had volcanoes. But also every single movie had some dude going face down in the water into like weird spookyville. And, and like, this is partially a joke, but it is also partially not a joke. Um, <laughs> what was going on in the early 2000s besides all the waterboarding in Iraq that was like making everybody be like, we need to go face down into the toilet? Well, there's a requisite war crime mention for the episode. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> huh. I have no idea. I I think, I mean, I mean, I guess there's something Lovecraftian about water. Is that anything? I don't know. <laughs> uh, all I can tell you is that it, it seems to me, like, this is the most, like, because Peter Jackson, obviously, before... Uh, the Hobbit films uh, in in the very earliest parts of his career was really into splatter. Like he had a splatter phase where, you know, he was doing stuff like bad taste and meet the feebles and brain dead, which were very like horror and sticky and ultra violent uh, films. And so it, it's, it's so interesting. This whole segment is just like, it's him kind of getting that little freak side of him out. Like he's like, Ooh, mm. Ooh, I can be really scary underwater. Um, <laughs> And there's also just something 
It, it, you know, it kind of reminds me of the Muppet Christmas Carol ghost that's just a doll that they put into water uh, <laughs> so that as it floats in the air, it looks has that sort of ethereal feel. Uh, mm. And, you know, it it really doubles down on it, I think, in uh, in this scene in particular. But boy, howdy, I, I, I remember being 10. I remember watching this for the first time. And uh, when those eyes opened and Frodo fell into the water, I screamed aloud Ooh. in a in a very quiet theater because that was the <laughs> scariest thing I think I had ever seen up until that point. There is a brilliant tweet somewhere on Twitter, in the bowels of Twitter, and I can't source it, but it does exist, where that goes something along the lines of, in the early 2000s, if you bought a ticket to a movie, you were almost guaranteed to see some sort of little freak on screen. (laughs) And this is true. (laughs) This is the Dobby and the Gollum effect, but it's also, I would argue, the CG Yoda effect. And in my sort of ongoing bemusement, fear, um interest in what the fuck was going on in the early 2000s when I was obviously uh, zoinked as a child and not paying attention to the world. Um, I continue to wonder like what the deal was with like culture generally that there was like this like weird like psychological need to have this little guy on screen because like I get it for Tolkien himself right like like Tolkien writing this is drawing on like the the like golem stuff um and this sort of like notion of having like a weird kind of corrupted inner child but but Tolkien is only one guy (laughs) the little freaks show up everywhere and I still want to know why (laughs) uh I'm just looking at the list of little freaks uh, that you've listed here. Uh, it's Gollum, it's Dobby, it's Yoda, little CG Yoda, and then Roman Roy is on here, and <laughs> I can't not picture Gollum in the same position after he sent his dad his dick pic. <laughs> just like fully caving in on himself. Uh, to, to be fair, I snuck in Roman Roy. I just wanted to see if Emily would uh, notice it or not. Uh, <laughs> well, my... bravo, because holy shit, that's all I've ever wanted is Andy Serkis as a CGI Roman Roy. Oh, God. <laughs> oh wow. Oh, um, boy. So my best, my best guess at why this is happening is this is probably like, the best testing of the limits of where CG kind of was at this point. Like we mm-hmm. weren't to the point where we could do like fully realistic human people in like some kind of CG mode. Not that you would theoretically want to you theoretically get actors. Um, but this is kind Bad of because Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> um, <Ew. but> this <laughs> is- <laughs> no, that was very intentional shot. Uh, but <laughs> like, I think this is like where you can kind of live at the frontier of like special effects of motion capture of integrating, you know, the practical with the digital. Um, so I think it just kind of lives there and it just, so I can't explain it beyond that because there's a million things you could do with that. But I guess just like little guys were in George W. Bush was president. He's kind of a little freak, um, <laughs> not a good one, but he is, you know, little and, you know, insane. So kind of works, but I I got nothing for you. I have no idea, but there were a lot of them. And I think it's almost like, 
anticipated now that like if you're doing any kind of franchise or kind of fantasy storytelling that there's going to be a little freak in there whether it's like a baby yoda or a babu frick <laughs> oh god uh babu frick hey hey the littlest of freaks <laughs> <laughs> i can't really think of what else it's just my brain immediately goes to star wars um it's a little less prominent in marvel but that's because it's built on this like super able-bodied uber mensch kind of archetype mm. for its heroes um, so you don't get a lot of little freaks. There was one in the Stinger Four Eternals, which I know everyone saw. What? Pip the troll, but he showed up with Harry Styles. Do you not remember this? <laughs> <laughs> Him and Harry Styles going on adventures. Oh Jesus! Hey, if anything can save the MCU, maybe it's that. <laughs> maybe it is the little freaks. I I agree. I I I feel like actually, little freaks bring such a chaos into things. I guess you could argue that Rocket is. Kind of a little freak, but like he's not freaky enough. You know, he's he's actually pretty like cool and level headed. I mean, except when he's flying off the handle. But like, you know, he's not he's not he doesn't make you feel scared in a way that Gollum and Dobby both do. (laughs) And you know, maybe that says more about how my feelings about Dobby. uh, (laughs) Real, 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 real freaky, real freaky little dude. Uh, just getting it. Don't meddle in the lives of twelve-year-olds. Do you know what I mean? God. Just like, just like, don't, just don't do it. It's it's you change, you die. <laughs> the only one who gets a pass is Jason Isaacs because I mean, look at him. But mm. uh, yeah, no, I I feel like I want more. I want more golems in like modern cinema because I just I need that chaos back. I need consequences back. I just need. <laughs> I need something weird again. Mm. I, I like this kind of like chronology of like these little freaks kind of show up once we get access to the technology um, as if there's like this kind of like universal little freak hidden out in the like data files of the world. Mm-hmm, and like mm-hmm. he could only be unlocked when we got to, you know, the year 1999 and he's just been waiting in in the sort of like backlogs of history for for, you know, however many millions of years for his chance to step out into the light, say some weird little pervert shit, and then, you know, get forced back in the closet by, like, the 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 upstanding nobility that is Rocket Raccoon. <laughs> that, that is kind of like Willem Dafoe's character in The Northman. He is a little freak. Like, he's, you know, oh, human, but he is kind of a gangle creature in his own way. Um, <laughs> what, what a wonderfully odd adaptation of Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Oh God! Um, <laughs> yeah, so we've just done an episode on this, um, and I have a moron because I truly did not clock that it was <laughs> that it was Hamlet. <laughs> I didn't either. I didn't either until I got home. So I was like, "It's a really interesting adaptation of Hamlet." I went, "No, no, but but I'm too pretentious not to know that. That's impossible." Yep. 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 Yep, that is the entire crisis that I had. Because it's down to the fucking skull as well. There is a skull. Alas, yep. poor Yorick. Fuck. Yeah. Ugh. Oh, hurts my soul. Yeah, you guys sure are dumb. Um. <laughs> 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 yeah, um, I guess, oh man, I guess that's that's kind of the, the lock in the box on the... Actually, no, I'm now seeing my note here about the Golems, the X-Files episode in Kabbalah, but I think it is too late in the history of the world to kick open the Kabbalah door. So I'm going to keep that one firmly <laughs> shut. Um, Back yeah, in the box I, with I, you. <laughs> I think uh, we're going to have to close the investigation, shove it into the X-Files in the basement on why the fuck there are so many little freaks running around in the <laughs> early 2000s. 
Well, someday a little freak will come on this podcast and explain it all, but <laughs> I, I am simply at a loss. <laughs> and that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Before we do our regular sign-off, AJ, thanks for joining us. Let everyone know where they can find you and what projects you're working on. Great. Uh, so I'm AJ. I'm a co-host of The Worst of All Possible Worlds, uh, which is a podcast uh, that is a weekly case study in the pop culture of a dying empire. Uh, we cover everything from uh, Hamlet adaptations to the Josie and the Pussycats movie. Uh, we recently did a play. We're big theater people. And one of our big recurring segments is a thing called Wit's Endless Summer, where we cover <laughs> Uh, Adventures in Odyssey, which is a evangelical radio drama that's been running since 1989. And it's basically Evangelical Simpsons is the way that I pitch it to people. <laughs> um, it's a real nightmare. Uh, both of my co-hosts grew up with it, and I, growing up Catholic, did not uh, grow up with it. So they are exposing it to me. And uh, one of the joys of the podcast is listening uh, to the psychic damage I have to take, <laughs> you know, every time we, we delve into those episodes. Uh, and we're also... Uh, going to have Emily on in the next couple weeks mm -hmm. uh, to talk about the screw tape letters, <laughs> which is very exciting uh, because that's what 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 are the screw tape letters other than C.S. Lewis's uh, "Notice Me, Senpai" to J.R.R. Tolkien? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I was super super excited about that. Keep your ears to the ground for that. I also wanted to pitch something that I didn't I I, I produced a really long time ago, but didn't like creatively make myself. Uh, my friend Brendan Dalton, who did the theme song for The Worst of All Possible Worlds, the podcast, um, also created a thing called Christmas in Middle Earth, which mm -hmm. is a parody album that uh, is about Christmas in Middle Earth. Uh, <laughs> I think it's about 11 tracks long, and it it's amazing. Like, the music is absolutely incredible. We were originally going to do a stage production of it uh, before the entire world shut down, and... Uh, it's one of my favorite things in the world, and you can you can stream that anywhere you want to. Uh, if you're a fan of Lord of the Rings, you're gonna absolutely love it as much as I do. And I'm also on Instagram. If you want to watch Animal Crossing <laughs> stories that will give you nightmares, uh, yeah. I'm at uh, at the Fuzzy Mask Man on Instagram. I'm also on Twitter at the Fuzzy Mask. And that is everything I do. Yay! <laughs> Thank you. And I do want to mention that. Uh, I'm a Spotify user, and Christmas in Middle Earth is on Spotify, so it is readily available. I'll probably be listening to it after we sign off today. Thank oh, you. it's so great. Please let me know your thoughts, because I, I love it to pieces. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycatmypod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to my Patreon, patreon.com slash manuclearbomb, which, manuclearbomb, hey, that's me, I've been Manu, you can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontiers. And I'm Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting on Twitter, where you can find me putting my whole JRR Tolkasi into it. <laughs> Good lord. <laughs> well, that's a wet wang over here. That's uh... <laughs> Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king.
They're stupid that the harbor says. 